Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to The Front Free. My name is Adam Bolwood. Joining me as always is the one and only Lawrence McKenna. Hey, how you doing? And uh, the stat man himself, Dave O'Brien. Hi, guys. So if you're wondering why it sounds a little different this week, it's because we are coming to you via the wonders of Skype, because unfortunately we couldn't all get in the same room together this week. So hopefully to our, uh, our jet setting lifestyles. Yeah, just because, you know, <laughs> the exciting lives we lead. Uh, so hopefully as a one-off, we've had to uh, dial each other up via the magic of the internet. But uh, on with episode five, first off, uh, I have to say thank you again for listening. Uh, it's been an amazing response. Again, everyone's sending us nice things on Twitter. A guy called Adam literally tweeted us eight thumbs up and the words nice things, which was good. Uh, Maggi, oh, it was good. It was, it was nice. I enjoyed it. Uh, Maggi Alna <laughs> Salara said, greatest podcast episode ever about episode four. That's, that's pretty nice. Oh, pretty cheers. nice one today. Cheers, lads. Uh, Liam Gray said, love the new Front Free episode. And James Stead said, the Front Free is great banter. I think we can all agree. Oh, that's, yes. Uh, that, that Get in the compliment. banter. That is a great compliment. Right. Uh, so, if you are listening via iTunes, we need you to do us a big favour and make sure you subscribe. And if you can spare a few seconds, please rate our podcast on a scale of one to five, preferably five stars. If you could also leave a comment, it would help out a lot. You know, get us up the iTunes rankings. That's just help um, in general, actually. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. In fact, if you want to give me give me some personal help here, guys, just go and do that. Just for me. Just go and do it. Yeah. Just for, just for me. Just for a mate. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So to sum up, thank you for listening via SoundCloud and iTunes. If you have any suggestions or questions for the podcast, you can reach us on Twitter at the front free using the number free, not the word. So let's get into it. It's time for a little bit of news. Then we've got the questions and then we've got the talking points towards the end of the show. So the big news this week is undoubtedly Raheem Sterling. So in case you haven't heard, Sterling is reportedly going to tell the club that he wants to leave. Uh, this week he's got scheduled talks with the club and his representatives, all that sort of stuff. First off, Lawrence, as a Liverpool supporter, how much of a blow is this? Uh, it, it's basically uh, a storyline that's been rumbling on for a while. I think in that time a lot of people have... Um, from I, don't, I, I kind of view this from the outside. I mean, I view this as someone who lives in London and knows the law of London in that sense. Do you know what I mean? And I know that, you know, when you come from a place, then you often want to go back there. Or if you come, you know, if you have a goal, then you kind of want to fulfill it. And I know that Liverpool have been very good to him in this time. Um, but I do, I, I don't think that either side have handled it well. And I think in contract negotiations, it's the responsibility of the club to keep it sort of in-house. And it's the responsibility of the player to do the same. I think a lot of people 
have been using the media in the wrong way, basically. Um, and, you know, it, it, th there's two sides to this. It's, you know, he's allowed to leave the club and he should be. He's, he should obviously be free to make his own choice. But the bigger issue is probably the way that it's been handled by both sides. And, you know, not only Liverpool, Brendan Rodgers, uh, probably FSG and the other press guys, but also his, his agent as well, who I think has done a pretty poor job of trying to pressure the club back. Yeah, Dave. Uh, so Tony Barrett from The Times, you wrote an interesting article today. And he said, even though, as Lawrence is sort of saying, Sterling has not conducted himself in the right way, what Tony Barrett was sort of saying is also Liverpool to blame. Like you're saying, it, all sides have not come out of this very well. So basically what Tony's saying is that uh, the club have not made it a difficult place to leave. There's no Champions League football. There's only one trophy in the last nine years. There's been three title challenges since 1991 and a transfer policy that prioritises the future and leaves the club unable to compete for the top players. So how much do you think the club itself is to blame for the current situation, regardless of whether Raheem Sterling himself has sort of handled himself poorly? I think that you've got to look at what the club have offered him. They've offered him very good terms. They've tried to keep it you know, away from the media in terms of you know, keeping an internal issue that Sterling hasn't signed this contract. But I think his agent is massively to blame in this whole mess. He's in fact the same agent as Berahimo. And, um, you know, if you remember early on in the season, Berahimo did an interview with Sky Sports saying that he wanted to go on to bigger things, blah, 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 blah. I just think this agent is an absolute rotten egg. You know, I think Liverpool haven't, haven't conducted themselves in, in a bad way. You know, the, the signings that they made recently, the likes of Coutinho, you know, Henderson in the same right, buying young players and trying to grow these players. And Chan, you know, Sacco. trying to grow these players. Sacco, you know, the list goes on and on and on. I've... But what, what they're going to miss with Raheem Sterling is one of the best under uh, players under 21 in Europe's top five leagues. You look at his stats. He's created seven goals this year. He's created more chances than any player under 21 in Europe's top five leagues. He's a top, top talent. And he's up there with the likes of Barabi or the likes of uh, Bernardo Silva from Monaco as the top attacking players in world football. So it'll be a massive loss for them. But I do think his agent is massively to blame. I think also what we have to acknowledge here, Adam, is that, I mean, Tony Barrett makes some great points, but what he's going from there is a very career-driven um, perspective. And I think, you know, a lot of people are juxtaposing the idea of Raheem Sterling as a career-driven player and Liverpool as a traditional club that maybe is uh, unwilling to move away from what are actually quite sensible policies when it comes down to offering a player £100,000 a year, year etc., it, it, the, the problem for Liverpool is that they're also competing within the market and that maybe that market is um, not to blame I think what we should just say is they have to know if they're competing within that market then things like this are probably going to happen and so there has to be a sense of acceptance around the fact that if you're going to cap your wages internally you're going to say look you know, there are other people around Sterling who are more than happy with £100,000 a week or uh, modestly happy you know uh, Jordan Henderson etc who are young promising England players and you know he's essentially a future England captain in inverted commas um so I, I think you know we have to put it in perspective that it, it is also a club where you'd imagine that Brendan Rod like the, the point's also been made that Brendan Rodgers will give him first team football most weeks um it's also a place where like Gerard says he won't just be a number it's also a place where if he does stay then he can go on and be a legend but I do also think that this is weirdly juxtaposed with Steven Gerrard leaving the club and, you know, I mean, if people want to write narrative, I think that's what people are trying to find in this, then it's that Steven Gerrard leaves the club without a Premier League title. And it's how you want to be remembered. Gerrard is going to be more fondly remembered than Fernando Torres, any of those other guys who came and played great football, because he was loyal to the club when he decided to stay. Even if at times he had his head turned, 
he still chose to stay in the end. I think that was what was important to the, the club. Well, I think an interesting recent um, example of that is uh, Robin Van Persie. So here's a player who, he went, he went to Manchester United. Yes, he's won the league title. But at the end of the day, it looks like his career at United is almost over. And this is a player who's not going to be loved or long remembered by United fans, I would argue. And obviously, he's hated by Arsenal fans. If he'd have stayed, perhaps the situation would have been different. So that's one way of looking at you know how it ends up if you leave the club. But just to play devil's advocate for a moment. So looking at Raheem Sterling, as you say, there's a sort of a situation there where you could argue Liverpool are a club who can offer the best development for Sterling in terms of him being a young player. Like you say, Brendan Rodgers is he's going to play him every week. But looking at it objectively... No, you see, that's the problem, Adam. Is that you're, know, you're, you're speaking as if you're speaking as if there's an objective side and a subjective side, and that only no, no, no. Liverpool fans will take a subjective side, no, no, and no. that's not true. What I'm saying is, so I agree, Raheem Sterling has not handled himself very well. But what Liverpool offer Raheem Sterling is, or what they could argue to offer him, is a place to develop as a youth player. Yeah. If, he, if you look at it from Manchester City's point of view, who are the club that have been linked, they can offer him the bench. So, no, no. Well, you could, ar- <laughs> you could argue, please feel free to argue back as I feel you're going to, but they could offer him more money, which I know is not, you know, the world Be of football. Be all and end all. The world of football is completely divorced from reality. But, you know, footballers measure their self-worth, it seems, by wages. It's not necessarily to buy themselves more stuff, but it's how they measure themselves against their peers, how much money they're earning. It's the, sort of their standing within the team. So Man City, yeah. Man City are going to offer him more money they're going to offer Champions League football and the chance to actually win silverware, which as you mate, out, yeah, but but they're not going to win the Champions League. No, but you know, you'd argue that perhaps Manchester City have a better chance of winning the Premier League, whereas Liverpool, with their current policies I mean, and the may, way the club's going, they don't they're not may, actually competing. Yeah, for, may, for the maybe title. that's part of it. Maybe that's part of it is that we also have to acknowledge if he's in the Champions League, he's going to get better terms from Nike. He's going to get better terms from other people offering him. Uh, deals as well so he stands to make more money there as well yeah so um, what I'm saying is it's not I, I appreciate that it comes across that Raheem Sterling is this sort of money grabbing 20 year old I'm trying to say yes there is that aspect to it but at the end of the day Liverpool are not a club in a position to be challenging for the Premier League or the Champions League obviously next season they're a club that you know they completely were outplayed by Aston Villa in the FA Cup semi-final, so there's no chance of domestic trophies last year, and you'd argue perhaps they're not in a position to compete next year for those sort of trophies. So you see what I'm saying? Why would they not be in a position to compete for the FA Cup? Well, what people are sort of saying is that the current policy the club are pursuing, they're not going to be able to attract marquee players. A a club of Liverpool standing, you know, you, you even look at Alexis Sanchez last summer, he chose to go to Arsenal instead of Liverpool. What sort of players are Liverpool going to be able to attract next year that's going to make their squad stronger and enable them to compete for those sort of honours. They, they couldn't really, they didn't get through to the final this year. What's going to change next year that's going to get them that extra way? You see what I'm saying? Well, I mean, they did, they did lose in the semi-final. I mean, it's, I know, the same as, it's the same as saying, you know, what, 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 well, I mean, no, it so is. So what's, what's going to be different next year that's going to take them to the next level, the final, and, and winning that trophy? Well, what you'd imagine, I think a lot of people would say is it, it, the route that Raheem Sterling chooses now, which could play into that idea is if Raheem Sterling decides to stay and say you know what yeah I'm going to build my career here that's arguably makes the club a more attractive prospect to other people because other people are going to say well if he's doing that then you know what, what you know I could do the same you know and, and I and that's that was a policy that Liverpool had built uh, that Brendan Rodgers is arguably built on which is buying youth and saying look we need to develop as a, a squad and get to know each other and 
you know, build up an understanding. And that came very quickly with Suarez because Suarez was such an easy player to collaborate with out on the pitch, at least from Liverpool's perspective. And, I mean, maybe that's part of the issue here is that we saw the fall apart of Aston Villa just a few years ago when they lost Barry, they lost uh, Ashley Young, they lost quite a few guys because people started not to believe in the product and also started to say, well... You know, we, we don't, th- don't feel like we're going to win anything here. Yeah. That's and that, what... I mean, that is part of it. If you're in Liverpool and you're in a bubble, then, you, you know, all you see is Liverpool, really. All, I, I mean, think... you see Everton, obviously, but all you see is, you know, God, this is one huge and great club. But what I imagine is that, especially with this agent who seems to be all over the country, he's going to be <laughs> saying things along the lines of, I would, yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's bigger, better football, you know, there's more opportunities. It seems and I do, the, the I do the, imagine the, there's a lure to that. The but theory, I can also the see does... the opposite. The theory does seem to be the agents agitated for the move. I would argue that it's coming from Sterling. I don't understand how you can say it's not Raheem Sterling. Well, I think, I think what you have to say, I think, I think what you have to say is, uh, you know, a lot of people don't want to believe badly of the player because right. if he does decide to decide to stay, then it's much easier to blame yeah. it on the agent and say, well, the agent interfered, therefore we well, can back him it now. It is the agent's job to make the client the good. I don't think he's done a particularly good job of it. Uh, well, yeah, well, that, that's even, I mean, that, that's almost another strand of it, really, though, isn't it? I think it's a salient point that, you know, the, the agent has to account for all his interests and not just the money and his career prospects. Mm. Um, I've got to say, I've become more cynical of agents since I saw um, Sol Campbell's agent. They're, they seem to be nice guys. And, you know, very often when you want to quote from them, then they'll say, you know, we're not all bad guys. Um, it's the same as very often a, a state agent. You know, when you get your flat, it's like, well, you know, we're not all bad guys. Um, but I saw a, a couple of agents talk not longer. I saw a guy called Sky Andrew, who's Sol Campbell agent. And I, I've, in the beginning of the night, I thought, you know, I'm going to probably give this guy a chance here. But I, I don't know. You almost feel like you have to call him out a little bit because... It kind of got to the point in the night where all he was talking about was, you know, you can achieve your dreams, you can do this. And you realise the mentality that he was building up with Sol Campbell and essentially, you know, Sol Campbell's probably a bad example because he's a vehement conservative who, you know, seems to just want to safeguard his own money and his own interest. But part of that comes that people, when you've got an agent around you, when you have people going, you deserve to make money, you can be a millionaire, you are this, you, they sell you the American dream or whatever dream it is. When you then have people extolling the virtues of, uh, you know, oh, you know, live a good, clean life, do this, do that, you know, it's not all about, all about the money. You, I don't know. There's something about that. There's a balance which maybe is hard to strike, which comes mean, somewhere you, between that. You, and all I've got to say is, and I, you know, Dave says he's a bad egg. I, you know, I don't know how extreme that is, but it does. It, I don't know there's just something there that rings true. And I, it, for me, it's both sides have handled this wrong. Neither of them should have gone to the media. They should have kept it internal till the end of the yeah. season. And you know, whether he wants to leave or not, he's doing it the wrong way. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think you could say, as, as you're saying, A.D. Ward, who's the agent, as Dave's sort of saying, he is Berahino's agent as well. And sort of taking these two situations together, you could argue that, you know, he has been a negative influence. But he, regardless, Sterling's contract is up in two years. So Liverpool have said they're not going to sell him this summer, uh, even though they recognise next summer it may be unavoidable to sell him. Uh, either way, Man City or one of the clubs that have been linked with him, uh, Build in Germany, a report in the Bayern Munich have been linked with him. Dave, at the end of the day, do you think it's better for him to stay at Anfield or do you think he would be better off going to the likes of City or Munich? I think now he's sort of he's made his bed and he's got to lie with it. He's definitely got to leave. But obviously Liverpool would have been the perfect place for him, you know, to to a, to move on as a player, to evolve under Brendan Rodgers. It's just a shame that Liverpool obviously have, have tried to build this team of young players and it's not going to happen. We're not going to be able to see that. That could have been a really exciting team with Sterling. Like well, I mean, Sterling's players. the only one leaving, Dave. 
But <laughs> I really think Sterling was the pinnacle of that team. Well, he will be the pinnacle. He would have been the pinnacle of that team. I think, I think that Ive, City, is, Ive is a good replacement for him. He is, but obviously different. I think they're at a different level, personally. I haven't seen enough of really? Jordan Ive to say that they, you know, that Jordan Ive is better or Sterling's better than the other. But I do think that Sterling would have been the cherry on that cake of that team. And imagine if Klopp had come in and we could have seen that. It would have been absolutely fantastic. And that's not what we're going to have now. I also do sort of blame the way the Premier League is structured in terms of English having a certain amount of English players in a squad because it does build an environment for this sort of thing to happen, that young English players are now expecting to get paid a lot more money. You saw the James Milner thing that's also broken, I think it broke last night, that he was City have apparently offered him £165,000 a week. That's for a squad player because he's English. It's absolutely crazy. We've created a, a, an environment that has completely broken clubs and yeah. has broken this market. It's divorced from reality, to be honest. But, I mean, but then what of what of players like Henderson, you know? Mm. But that's it. That's the thing. Henderson Henderson seems like a decent fella. He seems like he, he's grounded, he's switched on and whatever. Um, and he's not going to be swayed by his agent. He's not going to be, oh, yeah, Hendo will give you an extra 20k. There you go. Let's, let's go and move to Bayern Munich. He seems like he understands that Liverpool bought him at a young age and they have spent that time in developing and he has improved at Liverpool 100%. And I think that he's going to give back to the club. And that's a nicer thing than Raheem Sterling that's um, been at Liverpool for a bit and now he's just going to shoot off to Bavaria and have a few beers. Where do you think he's going to end up, Lawrence? Um, City or uh, Bayern Munich or do you reckon that Liverpool will keep maybe, it to his contract this summer? What about maybe Chelsea? Oh, would be an interesting one. That would be interesting. Um, I'd also be interested to see if Arsenal put in a bid. I think there's a lot of people who could put... You know, I mean, really, it's, it's, it's also the fact that a lot of people are saying he's drawn back towards, um, drawn back towards London. I mean, it's also worth saying that, you know, while we're talking about money... I mean, Dave says an extra 20k a week. That's an extra 80k a month. That's an extra uh, half a million a year. Damn and I know insane. that sounds money grabbing, but at the same time, you know, there are a lot of us out there who are career play. You know, we're career people. You know, I mean, I'm I'm freelance or whatever you want to call it. Um, and you know, when you think, well, you know, could I put some more money away? Could I give that to charity? Could I do that? Maybe his goals are also outside of football. Um, and you know, that's why people are saying, you know, he's not a money grabbing person, but he is someone who wants to look at investments and there's someone who wants to care about his future. Part of the issue, part of the irony is here that the people who are now coming out in the media and saying, um, you know, oh, you know, he should stay, etc., are guns for hire in the media. And why are they guns for hire in the media? Well, Jamie Carragher isn't, but why are certain members of the ex Liverpool squad guns for hire because they haven't invested their money particularly well. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And I mean, I know, I know, you know, I know it sounds, that sounds like sniping at someone, but it's essentially, it's true. Footballers, you know, they want to, they want to take care of their investments because they only can make this amount of money for a short amount of time. Well, let us know what you think about the whole Raheem Sterling situation. Leave your comments on SoundCloud or tweet us on Twitter at the front free. Uh, let's move on to some other news. I want to talk about Barcelona, who last week won La Liga title. That's their seventh in the last 11 years. So 364 days after Atletico went to Barcelona to win the league, Barcelona went to Atletico to win it back. Uh, and they're now on for the treble. But it wasn't always like this. In January, uh, they obviously lost to Real Sociedad and it was all looking a bit bleak. Uh, Luis Enrique was up for the chop. Messi was sort of suggesting that he was a little bit unsettled at the club. You know, a lot of things have changed since then. So, Dave, coming to you first, how do you think uh, Barcelona and uh, Luis Enrique have turned it all around? Well, I think he made an absolute statement. Obviously, the, the lads were both the lads were dropped. Messi and uh, Neymar were dropped after turning up late from uh, coming back from 
South American duty, obviously, with their respective countries, uh, Brazil and Argentina. And he dropped them. He put them on the bench. And obviously, Messi and Neymar, they threw their toys out of the plant. Pram, sorry, but we don't know what's actually happened behind the scenes. Obviously, Enrique's really sort of had a word with them. And, and since that day in, in uh, La Liga, they've, they've drawn one game and they've won, you know, I think they've won about 12 games on, you know, in that period. So he's really changed something. And obviously, it's positive for Barcelona and the world of football to see this Barcelona side really ripping up now. Lawrence, what do you make of uh, tactics from Enrique? So a lot has been made about the fact that uh, you know he's shifted Suarez to the middle, he's put Messi out on the right. How much do you think that is to thank for, for the way they're playing, basically? I do, I do think it has a, a role in there. I, I mean, Dave and I were talking about this uh, just this morning, saying how diff- uh, there is a difference between this Barcelona side and the Pep Guardiola side. And there's a difference in movement in the front three, obviously. There seems to be a lot more... Um, to do with the individual, the individual independence within the side and what their roles is. There's a lot more emphasis on the fact that Busquets is taking on a different role. Uh, Rakitic obviously plays his role as well. And then Suarez, Messi and Neymar are not free to roam, but they are much more um, malleable, if you like. And they, they have their own, they have a, a lot more agency than I think a lot of other strikers get. And it gives them a Barcelona-esque goal, but not necessarily a, a goal which um, you know you would say is the same every time. Whereas you know under Pep Guardiola, we saw some wonderful goals in there, but we would know roughly where they were coming from quite a lot. It was just impossible to stop them. Now we know that they're coming from those players, but there's a real variation, and you know some, obviously some incredible strikes in there, just in a different way. And then if you look a bit further back, I mean, obviously they've been trying to find the best back two, and I, I, I mean I still don't know who their best back two is, Dave. You know, I definitely say that is this season Mascarano and PK have sort of come together and they've really, they're such a solid partnership. You've got PK playing the more aggressive, sort of, you know, dominant in the air role, getting the ball down. And Mascarano just sweeping in behind, making tackles when it's needed. It's, it's worked out pretty be- pretty well. I think they're probably, the I'd personally say they're the best centre-half pairing in world football at the moment. Really? I'd say that above the Juventus centre-half pairing of Benucci and, and Chiellini. I just think they're really what do you hitting think of form this season. Uh, Matthew, I think he's good, but obviously he's been used this season to sort of shore games up. He's, you know, in the game against Juventus, he was born, brought, no, sorry, in the game against Bayern Munich, he was brought on at left back to obviously shore up there. I've seen other times where Mascarano goes back into midfield yeah. and uh, Matthew goes to centre back just to add that extra height. I think that's all he's been used for this season. I think that's what he'll be. He'll be a player to come in when, you know, Mascarano or PK are not fit. I think that's a decent role for him. And how about a little bit of credit for uh, Claudio Bravo as well? So he's obviously uh, their keeper in the league, whereas Mark andre Sturgeon's kind of their, their Champions League uh, guy between the sticks. Bravo's got 24 clean sheets in 37 games, and they've only conceded 16 goals in the league. It's absolutely yes, I mean, fantastic, it's isn't it? But then they do, they do a, I mean, again, we've got to acknowledge the teams they're coming up against. No disrespect to those sides, but, you know, there is a big gap in between the two. Okay, uh, what about um, Suarez? How much of an impact do you think this guy's made? So he obviously joined for, I think it was £75 million last summer from Liverpool. Huge. Inge- he obviously was banned for a while. We didn't start until October. Um, but in terms of what I'm talking about, the form really picked up after January. When they've had that, that defeat to Real Sociedad, where everything was looking, it was looking pretty bleak, he'd only scored one league goal at that point. Now he's up to 16. Yeah. So how much, how much is he to credit for, for the way Barcelona have sort of dominated for this, yeah. for this system, Dave, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, look at look at the way that he moves, and I you see such well, I, I guess you just see um, su- such comparisons, and obviously a lot of Liverpool fans looking enviously on at the fact that you know could he be combining with the likes of Coutinho, Sterling, Sturridge, and you see a similar mental partnership, don't you, Dave? With the yeah, other guys? you do. 
I think with, um, you know, look at his goal scoring record, he scored 12 goals since that defeat, six, six assists. He's really becoming very important in the Barcelona team. Another thing on their style, just going back to that quickly, they're sort of hitting teams on the break a lot more. And Luis Suarez has scored the most goals on the break for Barcelona this season. So he's really popping up in the right areas. And like, like Lauren said, his combination play with the strikers is absolutely phenomenal. You see that link up that they had with Daniel Sturridge and, and Sterling last season with their sort of front three. It's happening exactly the same with Neymar and with Messi. And I think it's, it's just been absolutely brilliant. He's been, you know, he's sort of the heartbeat in terms of the pressing. He really gets them going at the start and other people sort of push up with him. And then obviously he's absolutely deadly on the counter-attack. We saw the goals in the Champions League, the two assists, sorry, the two assists that he got in the Champions League against Bayern in the way leg. Fantastic stuff from him. And I really think that he is, he is sort of, his price tag is being justified right now as being one of the best number nines in world football. Yeah, everyone, everyone is hailing, you know, the MSN as this, this so-called, this, this front three. One element or one aspect of that, which I feel doesn't, he hasn't got as much credit as the others, is Neymar. So obviously Messi, you know, the best player in the world, you could argue. Suarez coming into the team, he's made such a huge impact. But Neymar, compared to last season, he scored nine league goals in the last campaign. This year, he's already got 22 league goals. So what what do you make of his improvement? I think it's, um, he knows where he's at. Sort of the interesting thing with Suarez as well, obviously came from Liverpool as the main man. But I think Suarez and Neymar have fully accepted that Messi is the main man and Neymar's got a little bit more confidence obviously coming to the league last season he's got a little bit more confidence he's shooting more he's taking people on more you know he's dribbling at people and I think that's a real you know it's it's justification of him improving as a player him understanding his role in the side and really improving as a full-round footballer Mm, agrees I I agree Um, yeah I also think it's down to the fact that you know it was was always going to be a difficult move um, for, for such a big player and such a I mean, really, we, you have to look at Messi's transition into the Barcelona lifestyle. And what do you yeah. have there? You have quite a change. And in terms of Messi himself, the main man, uh, he has had a, obviously he's had a fantastic season. Um, he's improved from last year, uh, where his form, you know, by his own high standards, he did have a disappointing campaign. So injuries and fatigue sort of had affected him last season. Reports are saying he's changed his diet. He's cut out the pizzas and the uh, and the fizzy drinks. <laughs> but he's got forty one goals this season, as well as seventeen assists. So, what do you credit this? You know, this change in in form for Messi to? I think it's all down to Luis Enrique really playing him on this right hand side. You know, going back to his roots when he first joined. You know, first came into the Barcelona team. He was playing on the right hand side. Um, he wasn't the main man, but now he is the main man on the right hand side. And I think it's working quite nicely for him. He can come in off the wing. He can drift wherever he goes, and he's got the likes of Rakitic covering him which I think positionally just gives Messi a lot more freedom. It's very similar to what Real Madrid were doing with Ronaldo last year, where they were leaving him up top on the left-hand side to do what he wants, really, to just you know drift around, score goals. And that's exactly what Messi's doing. I think it's absolutely fantastic what Enrique's done, obviously using him a little bit differently to Pep Guardiola, who used him pretty much as a traditional false nine straight through the middle, you know, as, as moving on through uh, Pep's, you know, tension as manager. But I think Enrique's really got to get, have credit for maybe that, that moment at Sociedad, uh, Messi realised who the boss was. Maybe Messi was getting a little bit ahead of himself. And obviously, the amount of Ballon d'Ors he was winning, he is a fantastic player. But I think Enrique sat him down and brought him down to the level of being a player again and not being above the club and not being above the coach. And I think that's absolute credit to Luis Enrique. So, Dave, what about set pieces then? You reckon that's been a, a key element to their success? Yeah, so it's really interesting. They've brought in a bloke called Jose Luis Nzu. And Barcelona have now become a lot more surer in attack and in defence with set pieces. Obviously, defensively, that was the main weakness under Guardiola. That's how you beat a Guardiola side. You hit, sit really deep. 
trying to hit them on the counter-attack and then you'd really work those set pieces. But I think they're a lot more organised this season. And then looking at the goals that they've scored from set pieces, they've scored 13 goals this season in La Liga. Only Bilbao and Atletico Madrid have scored more. So that's an absolutely fantastic record. So if you, you deal with the front three of Barcelona, they'll catch you out with a set piece. So it's, there's so much variation in this Barcelona team. And I think that's why I really, really like to watch them this year. I love it every time we say the front three. It feels like, you know, when you're in a movie, you're watching a movie, they reference, <laughs> they reference the title of the movie. I feel like the it's, front it's, three. It's like a wing to the audience. <laughs> uh, Lawrence, what do you reckon? Are they going to win the treble then? So they've got the final, the cup final against Bilbao coming up. And of course, Champions League final against Juventus. I think, am I right in saying they're going to become the only club side to have ever won the treble twice? Uh, I think Bayern might have done it before. I'm not 100% though. They potentially could be. I go. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I would. I would like them to get the treble, but I would also like Juventus uh, to do something pretty special. I know what you. That's what you want to happen. But what do you think will happen? <sighs> I think. I think though, Juventus will probably get beaten. In the fact, there's something kind of magical about uh, this Juventus side, though. There's something. I mean, you know, AC Milan were a better side in 2005 than Liverpool, and you still think, well, that was pretty incredible. I don't know. Yeah. I've got a feeling that it'll be a double for Barca and a, a treble for Juve. I can, I can confirm now, having done a Google search, that it would make Barcelona the only team Ooh. to win the treble twice. And also, as if that isn't impressive enough, it'll both be with debut managers in their first season. Because Guardiola wow, won the that is impressive. First it's, pretty, it's quite something, isn't it? Uh, even more impressive is also the fact that uh, Thomas Vermaelen has now won, uh, he's got a league <laughs> title to his name, which is the same as Cristiano Ronaldo, despite the fact he played zero games in the league. He should have never left, should he? Ronaldo oh, should don't, have never left wait, United. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, do you wait? You mean when you say played or started? Because don't you don't get a league winners medal if you're <laughs> the stat I've seen floating about is zero appearances, not even starts. Just okay. So, but then you, do you don't you have to play a certain number of games in order to win the medal in the Premier League? Yes, but in the Spanish league, apparently not. He's, he's apparently <laughs> qualified because he's part of the squad. He's qualified for a medal. In the Premier League, it's something like... Um, a certain 14 games, isn't it? Is it 10, I think? Like 10 appearances? 10 or 14. I know um, it's, it's something like that. And it, but, that but, well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you're part of the squad, then maybe you deserve it. I, mean, ask, it, I, know, obviously, I know, obviously, Ronaldo has been absolutely incredible since he's arrived at Madrid, but that just speaks to, uh, yeah, one league title since he's arrived. Not ideal. You know, we're talking about how Barcelona, obviously, they really picked up after January... After that defeat, they really sorted themselves out. Madrid, it was almost the exact opposite. Up until January, they were in really good form. You know, the, it's the BBC were combining perfectly. But since Christmas, their form's really suffered. Lawrence, what do you think has uh, contributed to the fact that, you know, they've sort of, again, their, their title challenge hasn't really been up to it. They haven't even taken it to the last day of the season. I know, obviously, Modric was, has been injured. He's a, a key player. But Ronaldo and Bale's form is, is just dropped off, hasn't it? I was going to say a huge a part of it seems to be how they've handled their their star players or their as I'd say egos in the side, um, and you know it, it seems as if uh, one manager decided to engage their egos, uh, and, and it was very effective. And I think that Ancelotti is often very good at dealing with footballers' egos, but um, in in this case, I think that it was even more than that. That you know the club has intervened, and I think club politics has got ahead of what's actually important out on the pitch at Real. And essentially, I think they've. They've sabotaged their own campaign, is, is what I want to say. Um, and I, f I feel sorry for uh, Ancelotti having to kind of manage through that because I think he, could, he can achieve a lot more with this side. And there's a lot of presidency kind of creeping in here. Um, you also think, I mean, I, mean I, I guess it's easier for Real to believe they're the bad guys. I, I do think that there's something about uh, Barcelona coming from Catalonia and 
um, that galvanising them in a way. Defenders of the realm, Barcelona, eh? They're defending the Catalonian flag. In a, no, but in a way, they are, I, th- I think. Or at least I think they see themselves that way. And politically, you know, we, we, I, th- I think it does sort of back the region. Because, you know, it, it is a bit of a political tool that they're a big uh, club and that they, you know, eff- effectively without them in La Liga, it would mean just Real Madrid. And so it's, it is quite a big sort of, oh, we're successful, you need us. Do you know what I mean? Um, I don't know how much of a huge effect that has, but, you know, it's obviously important. Um, so another interesting thing about that is, I think how Lawrence men- mentioned the egos and how they've not been dealt with properly. Obviously, Gareth Bale's form's really gone out the window. You look at ble- goals this season in all competitions for the, the two front threes. Messi, Suarez, Neymar have scored 115 goals. Ronaldo, Bale and Benzema have scored 97 goals. 45 yeah. of those goals um, have come from Ronaldo in La Liga. So it's the other the other two players. You know, Benzema's been in and out of the team, but Bale's had a you know he's been injured a little bit, but he's been he just hasn't hasn't really performed this season, and maybe that's the the problem that they aren't managing Gareth Bale properly. Obviously, his first season in La Liga, he's gonna it's gonna all be new and he's gonna be fitting in. But now this second season, they just haven't dealt with him enough. You know, he hasn't had enough support. He still can't properly speak Spanish. There's a lot of issues potentially circling around him. His agents obviously come out in the press recently trying to say, oh, Gareth Bale's absolutely fine this season, but. That those stats really sort of give it to you that Ronaldo is taking the brunt of that that sort of front three in a way. Didn't his agent Neymar... also say? Didn't his agent also say they're not passing to Gareth enough? Yeah. And that, do, do you not think that goes both ways? That when you're not getting the pass, not only it, I mean, his his insinuation is is, is, is politics. I would say, what if Gareth's not getting in the right positions? Well, I'd, I mean? I'd, I'd counter that point and say that the reason why Bale's not getting the ball enough is because one man is not playing and that's Luka Modric. Luka Modric had a fantastic relationship with Bale at Tottenham and then it was last season that you know they were coming together. Modric is really good at getting the ball out to wide players quickly. That's what he does. That's what he excels in and that's what he was doing to Bale and it's not happened this year. I think that's probably a li- another reason why they are suffering. Uh, Dave, how about a little a little word on uh, Atletico Madrid. So last season's champions this year, well there's still one game left but they're, they're 16 points behind Barcelona. They seem to what have, have made. Well, yeah. What have you made of their sort of title defense as well? It seems like they've lost their fight. It seems like they've lost their bottle a bit. Obviously, Diego Costa really did lead the lead the line, scored a lot of goals for them. But it seems this season that you know Mandzukic was really hot at the start of the campaign. Now and then he went cold, and it's looking like he's going to leave the club. You, see, you watch the game from the weekend, uh, the Barca Atletico game, and they just lost like a lot. They didn't have any fight. They had nothing left in the tank. Maybe that's the the whole three years of pressing syndrome coming back to bite them again. That. They just did not look up for it. You know, Barcelona dominated the game. Atletico didn't even look close to scoring. Antoine Griezmann probably bailed them out a lot this season with his goals. But it's it's going to be an interesting summer for Atletico. They're going to lose. Um, they're going to lose Mandzukic. They're going to have to sign another sort of target man s striker. And is there is anyone there? In World is football? that a fact, Dave? That they're going to lose Mandzukic? Apparently, you know, it's, it's rumored. It's that he's completely fallen oh, out with love of being in Madrid and all this. And, wow. You know, looking like potentially he might be heading back to the Bundesliga. But it's, and it's an uh, Griezmann one. as well. Griezmann apparently to Chelsea is the is the, the persistent rumor doing the rounds. So they could yeah. be losing a few. Key players. Missing a lot of goals there, really, aren't they? You know, Griezmann's their top scorer in, in the league. I think only Ronaldo and Messi have, have scored more. So it's going to be a big impact. He's really sort of brought himself into the side. Yeah, Griezmann scored 22 goals this season. Um, you know, Messi, Ronaldo, 41 and 45, respectively. So it's going to be a difficult summer for Madrid. Obviously, they do have this big debt behind them. They're, they apparently owe 500 million to somebody. So, you know, it's going to be a tough summer. How do you think it sets them up for, for next season? So obviously Barcelona have still got a transfer ban this summer. They can't sign any new players. 
Real Madrid, you expect are going to go out there, try and get another Galactico, whether it be Paul Pogba or someone else. What do you think is going to be the situation going into next season? Potentially with Ancelotti, probably with Ancelotti, not as Madrid manager anymore. You know, how do you see it playing out? I think if, if Barca keep keep uh, Dani Alves, I think that's the key to their summer is getting Dani Alves to sign a new contract. They'll go on to, to retain the title with ease, I think. But, you know, Real Madrid are in transition again. They're always in transition. And I think Atletico just don't have enough at the moment. Um, so it's, it's going to be an interesting summer to see whether Barca can keep him. I think that's it. If they keep him, they'll win the league. If they don't, they're going to struggle. Well, it's keep him or replace him, really, isn't it? But they can't, obviously, with the ban, they can't replace him. So, you know, looks at like, like it, the players in their squad. They've got Douglas from Sao Paulo, that's absolute rubbish. And then they've got Montoya, that's obviously a promising youngster that's coming through the ranks. So Danny Alves is still, in my opinion, the best right back in world football. So it's going to be a difficult one to replace him. Well, that's it for a bit, a bit of in-depth look at Barcelona's title-winning season there. After this, we'll come back with a little bit of transfer news. Right, let's go on with a bit of transfer news. The main transfer news is, is rumbling on is, of course, David De Gea. We did touch on it last week, but now the reports in Spain are claiming that United are resigned to him leaving. He might have already agreed a deal with Real Madrid. Dave, as a United fan, I want to know how much of a blow is this to Manchester United oh. if he does indeed leave? So I think it's obviously it's an absolute massive blow. You looked at David De Gea's uh, body language when he was coming off the pit from when he got subbed. He wasn't looking at the fans. He wasn't looking at the stretch. Then he looked like it kind of looked like you cheated on your girlfriend, your face, when, it, when you know, if you did cheat on your girlfriend, that would be your face. You're looking down, you're not looking at her eyes, you're walking off the pitch. And I think that's what it is. I think he's definitely gone. Uh, in terms of how big a blow is, uh, I don't know. I think there is other goalkeepers in world football that could, could, could replace David De Gea. I think that a goalkeeper is obviously a key position, but I think there's a, that we've, we've missed a lot of good goalkeepers in world football for a few years now. But I think there's a few that are coming out, that are coming out now that are really sort of increasing that sample of good goalkeepers. Obviously, De Gea is definitely one of them. So I think he's replaceable. I'd say losing the likes of, uh, you know, say losing the likes of Michael Carrick or Ander Herrera. I think United would find, would that be a bigger blow to United? Obviously, De Gea has been excellent this year, but I think goalkeeper is a position that you can replace, but you need to be clever with your signing. Lawrence, what do you reckon uh, if De Gea does go to Real Madrid? Do you think it's the right move for him? We've had Louis van Gaal come out over the weekend and sort of say, you know, you won't be loved at Madrid as, as much as you're loved here at Old Trafford. So what do you reckon? Is it a good move for him if he does go? It's an interesting one um, because, I mean, obviously he's a, he's a Spaniard, so that impacts mm-hmm. yeah, um, a lot. Family's there. Family's there. Uh, I think he's, I mean, the stupid thing whenever people talk about rumours is that girlfriends aren't happy and they don't want to stay in Manchester, you know, they'd rather be in Madrid. Um, I reckon that is like, you know, that's like a, an underappreciated part of it though, do you know what I mean? Like, what, but yeah, even... No, no, but um, what I'm saying is, I, I, I'd imagine it is underappreciated, but mm. it's also something we can't, you could, I mean, no, who we don't knows know, that? But you know what you'd I mean? imagine it's an important factor in, in, in deciding where you're going to go. So it sort of makes sense. With... Laura, what's wrong with Manchester? It's a lovely place to live. I spent 19 years of my life there. What's David Dyer's girlfriend think, on about? She's I think, crazy. I think that has a lot. That probably that probably tells us everything that's wrong with Manchester. <laughs> um, but I think the, the bigger, I mean, the bigger, the bigger factor is, I think, um, that, I mean, United initially didn't accept him, and I wonder how how deep that sort of went with him, um, and the fact that he is, you know, he's a world class goalkeeper, but when he wasn't doing so well, there were a lot of people questioning him. 
and it's, it's difficult when you have the fans on your back. I think sometimes it can create a little bit of resentment from players. Um, and I think it, just because it was such a difficult time at Old Trafford at that, at that point, it made that even more uh, an intense uh, experience. And sometimes I think, you know, if, you, if you're invited to go home, in inverted commas, because that isn't, you know, his home club, it, it is his home club, but it's not, if you know what I mean, it's not where he grew up, then, yeah. uh, you know, we've... We, maybe that's just there's a really big pull to that that you know if, if things aren't working out and you've had a few problems he's not he's not running anywhere but he he's being offered an upgrade of lifestyle an upgrade in how he's treated and probably an upgrade in contract it's interesting what you say about the the love for De Gea from from United I think the fans have always been on his back it's just the media that's painting that horrible picture when when he was sort of um you know when he when he came went through that poor form. You remember the game against Blackburn Rovers where he had an absolute nightmare between the sticks. He couldn't come and claim costs. He looked scared. He looked afraid. He got bullied by by Blackburn in a way. But Ferguson really stuck by him, and I felt that Ferguson really gave him something else. Obviously, David Moyes is a different story, but Louis Van Aal's really instilled that belief back into him. So I think for David De Gea, he sort of uh, potentially owes United a little bit of something as well. You know, we've, we've bought him as a young goalkeeper. We've worked with him a lot, and for me. He should stay, but obviously that's the fan talking within myself that he does owe the club something. Well, that's uh, an interesting side. That's an interesting side, isn't it? Is the owing of the owing of anything to a club, and whether that would have developed elsewhere? Because obviously we can't say whether another manager would have done exactly the same thing, um, or you know whether he would have developed in the same way at Madrid. If you know. What I mean. Let me move on to the the other bit of transfer news this week. Another goalkeeper is uh, Petr Cech. So obviously. He's obviously been linked to a move away from Chelsea, having lost his number one shirt to uh, Thibaut Courtois. So the report is that he's close to joining Arsenal. So, Lawrence, can you actually see that one going ahead? Do you reckon Mourinho is actually going to allow Czech to go to, uh, to a direct rival? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, it's, yeah, it's been rumoured a lot, and I would have thought, yeah, it's not going to happen, but it's sort of ramping up now. They're saying, yeah, he, he is going to go to Arsenal. I, th- I just don't think that's... I can't see it happening, to be honest. I think, you well, know... I, mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I guess part of me just sort of thinks I don't... I, I guess I'm just not equipped to evaluate that. Do you know what I mean? What, why... He would be a great goalkeeper for Arsenal, but what's the benefit in, um, in, it, in it for Chelsea? Yeah, you, you'd hope that Chelsea owe check a little bit. You know, might like living in London. He's obviously been there for a long time. He's won a lot of trophies with them. You know, potentially they might again owe him something for being at Chelsea for so long, so he can stay in London, bring his family up in London. 
Obviously, he is a brilliant, brilliant keeper still. He's obviously one of the best in the Premier League. I'd like to see him at Man United. You know, De Gea goes, get check-in. That'd be fantastic. But he would suit Arsenal down to an absolute team. And I really do think that, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Maybe maybe Chelsea will get a bit of cash for him, you know, like 15 million for a, for a goalkeeper of, of his age. Obviously, that's a good deal for them, you know, with this FFP stuff, potentially could work out. The classic that we saw uh, a year or two back was Chelsea, Jose Mourinho didn't allow Denver Bar to go out on loan to Arsenal because, mm. uh, you know, he saw them as a direct rival. So I, I wonder what has changed <laughs> since then to, to make him think, oh, yeah, you know, let's sell Petacek, well, as you say, one of the best goalkeepers in the league, to someone, to a team who many people are saying are going to be finally actually challenging next season. Well, is, is that it then? Is that, that Mourinho's making a statement now that he doesn't think Arsenal will challenge the oh, league next year? Games, it's so, all the mind games, So he'll send in Peter Cech. Go on, you can have Peter. We don't even think you'll get top four next year. Is that what it is? You know, that's interesting already if that is the case with Mourinho. Well, you also have to wonder where the rumours come from, don't you? Is, you know, whether they come from Petr yeah. Cech, whether they come from Chelsea, or whether they come from uh, possibly even within Arsenal. Someone saying, you know, we need a goalkeeper. Uh, let's start putting the feelers out. Because as soon as someone... You know, people ask, are Arsenal looking for a goalkeeper? Those sorts of things. And, you know, we don't know where the rumours come from. I think that, that would also be interesting. Is it, you know, is it Arsenal to Petr Cech or is it Petr Cech to Arsenal? The interesting thing with him, he's, he's only 32. It's crazy. You know, he could have another eight years left in his career at the top level. You know, you look at the likes of Edwin van der Sar, keeper that was positionally brilliant. I think Petr Cech's a similar keeper to that. So whoever gets him is getting an absolute steal. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Sam Allardyce. So it's looking increasingly likely that he's uh, not going to be offered a new contract at Upton Park. His contract's up at the end of the season. Uh, the club is said to be already looking at replacements. Uh, Slaven Bilic is a name who's always linked. Steve McLaren is another one. And uh, Rafael Benitez, those rumours refuse to go away. Apparently he's going to pitch up in, uh, in East London in the summer. So Lawrence, what do you think? Do you think this is uh, a bit unfair on Sam Allardyce that they're not going to, you know, Keep him on at the club. Do you think this is, uh, you know, almost ungrateful from from the owners? Um, I mean, that's kind of I, the vibe the media are giving. That you know, this guy deserves to be given another contract. Well, I, I think Biggs Ham also has a lot of friends in the media. Um, I, it, it would obviously be good to see him in the Premier League because I think he is right. He's almost like I don't know the way that the way that I see Big Sam is like the troll. Um, under the bridge in the Premier League you know you still want to face him so you still want him to be part of the story but you don't necessarily want him to be part of your story um, and sometimes he gets and sometimes I do think he gets misrepresented he can be quite arrogant or at least he can come over that way he can sometimes be sometimes he looks a little bit like a, a tortoise that's um, enjoyed to uh, learn to enjoy the smell of its own farts does that make sense <laughs> um, basically basically he drops a really smelly comment and then sort of stands in his own stink for a few minutes and you just sort of think because he can't move and you just sort of think not because he's fat but you do think you do sort of think um yeah basically there's there are elements there where it's it's a great narrative um and you know people obviously say well you know golden uh Golden Sullivan, you know, they're a very ungrateful pair, you know, a risky businessman, you know, they're likely to let someone go. But the fact is, if, the, if they want to find themselves an upgrade, then let them try. You know, I mean, they're, they're, Rafa Benitez would be an upgrade on Sam Allardyce. We have to, um, we, we have to acknowledge that. Tactically, he probably would be. You know, working with the players, he probably would be. But the difference is, is he a good fit? And you do sort of think, well, maybe Big Sam and West Ham have, have reached their... 
have both reached their peak in that sense. Do you know what I mean? I think it, yeah, I think he's coming to this conclusion where he is going to leave the club. But Dave, what I want to know is, do you think he has been underappreciated? So in that first That's season, massively. they joined the club. He won promotion. Second season, easily sort of kept him in the Premier League. This year, they could be qualifying for the Europa League, which I know some people... Who fucking fair play, Adam? Don't make it out like it's yeah. some sort no, of... No, no, no. <laughs> Via fair play, yes. But they, the fact is, they're going to qualify for the Europa League, probably. So do you not think he's Which been is uncharacteristic of a fucking Sam Allardyce side. <laughs> let's put it that way. Hey, hey, Dave, Dave, do you reckon he's been like, underappreciated? Sam Allardyce is a data guy, right? He probably sat in his room halfway through the season and thought, right, we're going to get to Europe. Through the, through the league position, no. What what, oh, let's have a look at fair play. Let's see how many yellow cards are picking up, fouls, red cards and all that. Oh, we've got a chance here. Maybe he's told all the players to go a bit easy in the tackles and that's that's his way to get to Europe. You never know, do you? I, th- I think it was Jacob Steinberg who tweeted it the weekend and it was with a huge exclamation marks. It was something like, um, uh, West Ham, get a yellow! But I think they're a long way ahead of, uh, of everyone else. <laughs> they don't have <laughs> But going back to your question, Adam, yeah, definitely, he's massively underappreciated. You look at the when he when he left um, left Bolton, what that caused. You know, the club was in disarray, got relegated. That what that's what could happen with uh, West Ham. So Allardyce is a really good manager of getting a team to a certain level in the Premier League. It's a good level for certain clubs, and it's an underappreciated level. Imagine if he was still at Newcastle. The mess that Newcastle in right now. They could be a Sam Allardyce club. They could play an all right brand of football. West Ham's brand of football has been pretty good this year. Obviously, Allardyce was slated at the start of the season for his brand of football. He's changed it up a bit. He's evolved. And I think that, you know, when he goes, West Ham could be a team heading for relegation next season. Oh, controversial. You, uh, I mean, you also think if, if they got Rafa Benitez or someone like that, if you think Sam Allardyce's football is boring, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, Liverpool fans were not always the height of entertaining uh, <laughs> those years. So, yeah. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on to the questions then for this week. And loads of questions again. Uh, if you do want to get your questions in, then send them in to Twitter at the front free. So the first question is Adnan Qureshi, yeah. who's, who's always writing in. Thanks for that, Adnan. He Thanks, says, Adnan. Idea, he says, whose idea was the front free? It was mine. Next, mine, my idea. No, I think it was mine. No, it was. It was like uh, it was all three of us. It was the perfect union, just like Messi, Neymar, Suarez. All kind Adam, of Adam, let, let's say this. Adam was the driving force behind it because he really wanted to launch his own presenting career. He was oh, yeah. somewhat jealous of the limelight that Dave and I were getting on the show, <laughs> and he thought to himself, "How can how I get can in I? on this?" I said, I? "Adam, I'd like to present it." He said, "I don't think that's a good idea, Lawrence." I so said, "Listen, mate, I'm front and centre. Listen up." I'm in yeah. there. I said, I don't mind playing the messy role. He said, all right, Dave can be Neymar. We oh, all Neymar. Agree. Which, I'm definitely Neymar. All right, Which fine. one am I? Which well, one am I? That, well, that makes you uh, Suarez. Oh, I'll take that. I'll take that, yeah. mate. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ugly but cool. lovable. So there you go, Adnan. Not... There you go. There, there's the story. Uh, John Keane, next question, says, are whole city going down? I think we can all say yes. Yeah, definitely. I, I they need to like beat Manchester United this yeah. weekend. They're playing the best team in the land, so yeah, of course they are. They're going to get smashed, oh, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, Jacob Hill asks, who's better, Aguero or Suarez? Because for me, it's easily Suarez, but most of the hashtag filthy fellas think it's Aguero. Uh, filthy fellas are a, a YouTube channel, if you didn't know what that is. Uh, but they obviously think it's Aguero. What do you reckon, guys? I'm going to say Suarez, seeing as you've just compared me to him in terms of the, the metaphor. So I think Suarez is better than Aguero. We're really not one. like the filthy fellows, are we? No, we are like the opposite. <laughs> we're, the, we're the clean chaps. Huh? Yeah. Good lads. The good lads. Hashtag. The good lads. <laughs> Dave, Dave, you don't get the game. 
<laughs> hey, rename the, pod- <laughs> the podcast now. Uh, um, who's, Suarez, one hundred percent. You know, you look at his his last season in the Premier League. He was directly involved in forty three goals. That's his goals and assists. It's absolutely incredible. You've never seen Aguero have had a season anywhere near that, obviously, because he can't keep fit. So Suarez, for me, is, you know, and you look at his now role in the Barcelona team, absolutely fantastic. You can sort of compare that with the role of Aguero's um, role in the Argentina team with Messi, and it didn't really work. I think Suarez is a better player in terms of building partnerships in a side, scoring goals, creating goals, just being an all-round menace and biting people. So that's where I'm going to go with Suarez. Lawrence, who do you prefer? I know you love these sort of questions. Uh, Suarez um, what I've really enjoyed over the last week is thinking of players if they played for other teams Um, Suarez if he played for Liverpool Aguero if he played for Barcelona if he played for Real Madrid Um, and you do it sort of makes I guess I guess it just changes the way that you see the players Um, so yeah I'm going to say Suarez but Aguero has different qualities yeah definitely okay I've got a very complicated three maybe four pronged question from Luke Willock Right, he says, why did Liverpool go on an unbeaten run with the 4-3... Sorry, I said that again. Why did Liverpool go on to an unbeaten run with the 3-4-3 formation earlier in the season? Yeah, well, they had like 10 in a row or something, didn't they, where they didn't... Yeah, they didn't... potentially more. Um, um, why, why did that work? I've sort of hit on this before. Sorry to jump in, Lawrence, but it's, it's that they didn't really hit any sides of any quality. I think the 3-4-3 the three is a good formation at beating smaller teams, but when you come up against a team that's tactically aware, could get behind your wing-backs, you're going to get punished. You know, you're going to get your centre-half, you're going to get dragged out wide, it's going to create space in the middle. And tactically, I think it's a good option when you're beating small teams, but you need to change yourself up when you're playing the big dogs. And I think that's what's kind of happened. They've played the big dogs and they've been beat. Last, that leads me to the next question, which says, has that formation been figured out? You're saying yes by the, by the bigger teams, essentially. It did seem like a lot of teams started to target uh, Emre Chan as that weakness in the in the in the back three. Yeah, but he's, he's a strange one for Emre Chan. You know, he, was, he was playing left back for Bayer Leverkusen or central midfield, but now he's playing on a, the right side of a centre back three pairing. That for me is a bit confusing. What's your opinions, Lawrence? He's very, I mean, he's, he seems like a very adaptable player. He's certainly a player that Liverpool fans like because. Um, you know, well, they understand that he'll either need time to grow into that role, or he'll move forward when they get a better uh, left, right-sided centre-back. So there's a lot of patience for him, I think. And I think they were just appreciative of his adaptability this season, which you know effectively gave Liverpool that run. Because without him in that position, I think it would have been difficult for Rodgers to play that formation. Yeah. Um, you also think about the. I think another huge part of that was the midfield that sat in front of that made the back line quite porous, and so Dave's point, which is really well made, um, would also change if Liverpool had had more control in midfield. They didn't yeah. have a midfield that was able to control games, and because of that, they were quite easily bypassed. You know, they didn't have a Lucas in there who was able to break up the play as much. They didn't have someone like Gerard, uh, who was able to charge around. And Alan was ineffective when he played on the pitch. The only real consistent player in there, and, and you know, that was because of his early captaincy, and it was more of a perception thing than an actual influence at times, was Jordan Henderson. And so, mm. and just ahead of that, obviously, they had, they had some great players. Um, I think a real benefit there is that Liverpool have got someone like Jordan Ibe back there. Uh, they've also got someone who now, would they need in the, excuse me, they need in the summer to acquire someone who can basically sit in front of that back three. And not play the quarterback role, but play a new role and re- basically reshape this uh, Liverpool team um, to, to not accommodate Gerrard. And 
I think in this time, we'll probably see um, a quite different shape of Liverpool side come out next season, but one that plays a similar brand of football. That sort of leads me on to the final part of his question. He sort of says, what, what formation should they be playing next season? How can they sort of tweak it? So it's difficult to well, say without knowing who they're going to bring in over the summer and how they're going to sort well, of adapt. Well, it's who they should Gerard. bring in. Um, I think they should definitely play a front three or front four, which incorporates probably Daniel Sturridge, probably Coutinho. If he's still there, Sterling. If not, you've got Jordan Ibe, who's um, who's managing to sort of uh, you know make a real impression on the Liverpool fans, and has certainly made an impression lower lower down uh, in the leagues in Derby. Um, I think it was Wickham as well. So yeah. there's, you know, there's a couple of places where Jordan Ibe's made an impression, and he's made an impression at Anfield because of a his physicality, b his pace. And because a lot of people painted him as Sterling 2.0. He's also an original Liverpool fan. That's why he's there. He doesn't have an agent. His parents are his agent. And that sort of gives him um, a bit of an edge on Sterling at the moment. And then you've got people like Markovic who have maybe not had the same chances. You've got people like Lana who, uh, you know, play not great at the weekend, but certainly look like a bright spot within that. Um, and then you've also got people in the under-21 squad like Brannigan who... You know, the Liverpool Echo and a couple of Liverpool journalists have earmarked as a replacement in midfield for Gerrard because of the way that he, he runs the midfield. But you do wonder, does he clash too much with Henderson? So I do think we'll see a couple of guys uh, come up and through. I think Liverpool will buy three marquee and in inverted commas signings in the summer. I don't know who they're going to be, but I, th- I think, you know, Liverpool are trying to basically put out the noise that they, they want to get in some big marquee signings and try and get a place back in the top four. Well, that was. I hope that answered your question, Luke Willock. Very in-depth stuff there. Great stuff. Uh, next question is from Robert Smith, who says, "What potential signing would have the biggest impact in the Premier League next season?" That is a tough question. Uh, so, talking about those sort of the big names who are being linked with the Premier League, Gareth Bale is always linked with uh, Man United, Man City most recently, Chelsea. Uh, Paul Pogba, of course, has been linked with uh, City. We've got people like Antoine Griezmann being linked with Chelsea. Mm. Are there any names that you think would make, you know, who could make a massive, almost title-winning impact? Sort of how, you know, Cesc Fabregas, Diego Costa have uh, this season in many ways for, for Chelsea. Well, Lacazette, main man, oof. over in Lyon. Big goals. Two, two, you mean when he comes to Spurs, you know, we're going to yeah. finally get the top four. That would be nice. That would be nice. Any names that spring to mind, Lawrence, or...? Um, uh, you, I mean, you pretty much already covered them. I think if if Gareth Bale goes to United, that's That'd that's be a game huge. changer, wouldn't it? Yeah, um, it's a even marketing wise. I mean, uh, the question there was a question this morning on um, Football Daily Weekly, and they said, you know, uh, who would be a legend in the Premier League if Gareth Bale came back and he was at United? He's an instant Premier League legend. Yeah. Oh. All right, there you go. Big talk. Uh, next question is from Maji Al Nasrallah, who's always. Uh, leave a nice comments on the old Twitter he says who, who is the best coach in the world coach uh, yes I, uh, you John know Carter. just a broad term for, for her uh, manager as well John uh, oh no 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 oh, no, so no yes no. he is yes you're right yes he's already he's already put that one to bed uh, no who do, you, who do you reckon based on this season who, who do you think is the best manager this season best manager or best coach yeah uh, that's two let's questions just, let's just, okay let's just say best Let's use it can as I, a broad can term I answer the to cover coach? both coaches and managers. Yeah, go, Dave, can I, no, let can Dave, I go best coach? Oh, okay. On, yeah, let's take it literally. Go on. So, the, so coach, you know, you're looking at like an assistant manager maybe. I'm going to go with Carlos Kiros has been the best um, assistant manager that United have ever seen in terms of what he, he revolutionised the club right in now, terms Dave. of... 
right now. You said, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a fair point. I love yeah. how it came back to United point. with Dave all of a sudden. It's just oh, I've the absolutely messed up. Dave, you've done this a few times today. Dave, I've been around you a few times today. You made a few dust points. I'm going to be honest, Dave. We're talking right now. Listen, who is the best coach in the world? That could be, you know, a coach, a managing coach at a team or. As you say, the backroom staff. Um, it's it's an open to interpretation that question. Sammy Lee. <laughs> I'm going to go Pep Guardiola. I think his, oh, he's his, gone for his it. detail is is just unbelievable. You know, I do you not, do you not think the semi-finals this year have sort of hurt his reputation and sort of no, I think ta- maybe I think shown he's a bit stubborn tactically. I think tactically, yes, but in terms of if we're going to go with the best coach, I think uh, what Guardiola does and what he gets out of his players in training, you know, you hear the reports of what he does. It's just pretty incredible. All the players enjoy his training. He does loads of different things. You see um, the amount of shape, different shapes that he plays, different formations that he plays. It's pretty incredible. So I'm going to go with Guardiola as my best coach. Go on, Lawrence. Any, any thoughts on best coach on that training pitch? Who's, who's you know, who's doing the best work out there? Not that, not that we, uh, not that we uh, visit any of these pitches and know. <laughs> I did like the, the detail that Jonathan Wilson gave about Pep Guardiola actually where he yeah, said uh, you know, he divides the pitch in 16 zones and then tells people where to press I thought that was quite interesting mm. um, I, I mean Allegri is more of a manager I think he you know although he, he is very intelligent tactically so you know does he fit the kind of does he fit the coach vibe a little bit more in that sense do you know what I mean he does change yeah. teams tactically quite a lot when he goes there um, so uh, you know put Allegri forward uh, for doing a great job at the moment, and obviously, you know, having a huge impact at a couple of big clubs. Um, you would also say, what about? I mean, Kuman's been very interesting. Yeah, yeah it's a, an interesting one. On, on Allegri, apparently, he's got the best. You know, when they when they get the coaching license in Italy, they do it like a dissertation type thing. Yeah. Apparently, Allegri is probably is like the one of the best ever written, and that's why he's got the jobs at the AC Milan, and that's why he's got the jobs at Juventus because he's he's regarded as. You like Lawrence was saying, one of the best tactical coaches in Italy. He's got a degree. Good got on, a degree, mate. Big yeah. degree. That, that is going to be the end of the questions. Uh, no, there's a good one there. Who would win the La Liga eleven versus the Premier League eleven versus the Serie A eleven versus we the Bundesliga? We've got to save it for next time. I was about to oh, say, mate, guys, I, I'm we, sorry. we are definitely asking we're, that one next we're time. We're pressing. We're, I've written them all down, as I say. We'll, we'll be asking the ones we didn't get a chance to next time. If you do have any more questions, though, on Twitter at the front three, get them in there. Uh, we're back in a short while with the talking points. So, on to the talking points. Uh, to wrap up the show, each of us is bringing uh, a topic we want to discuss. First off, we need to talk about last week's uh, talking point that Dave brought about, you know, best ever front freeze based on the, you know, Messi, Ronaldo, Suarez. Uh, we did talk about Ronaldinho, Eto, Messi, uh, Ronaldo, Rooney, Tevez. There's been quite a few suggestions on the old on the old Twitters. Uh, Luke mentioned Figo, Ronaldo, Zidane. What do you reckon? Oh, that's a good one, that. Good one. That is dangerous. Scary. Adnan Qureshi is sort of taking it, not quite literally front freeze. He's gone for like trios, you know. He's just named he's three for, people. Well, he's gone for Van der Sar, Vidic, Rio, which I thought was an that would be, I mean, that is interesting, a three, isn't it? It's yeah. an interesting interpretation. They are, they're not a front three, but they are a three. A That's three. a good trio. Well, yeah, but they're uh, not a back three, but that is a good one. Charles Antoniades uh, said Pires, Burkamp and Henri, which is a pretty... 
bloody yeah. classic from free. What about uh, what about Lundberg? Hey, eh? is he is he missed a cut? No, he's not. Yeah. He's not part of this. Uh, uh, this what about uh, what about <laughs> what about Will Tords? Ooh. Oh, all right, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to do like uh, Logan Sullivan also suggested that one. Uh, Liam Gray, not a front three again, but he suggested Sergio Busquets, Xavi, and Iniesta as the best sort of trio, which I thought was a very, I mean, very good. Gerard Alonso, Mascherano. What about? Oh, um, you did mention that. Yeah. What about Hilo, um, Ambrosini, and Kaka? Ooh, interesting. Now you see, they were always played in a diamond <laughs> four. They were always played in a diamond four. They were back of a diamond, so I can't, I can't say those hey, guys. You're but... missing Gattuso, mate. You know, yeah, he'd exactly. absolutely rip your head off if you, you know, if he was listening. Speaking to of, it. speaking Surely of Milan, speaking of Milan, Supercoach Scholar said, "What do you guys think of Marco van Basten, Frank Rijkaard, and Rud Hullet? That is a yeah. legendary trio. That is pretty classic. I would have loved to see that. Would have loved to be in that age of it. Oh, it's too, too, I'm too young. Would have been amazing. Go on YouTube, Dave." Thank you for all your suggestions there, guys. This week's talking points. First up, we've got Dave. He wants to give us a rundown uh, of the champions of each of the five major leagues. Yeah, so I just wanted to go over, give everyone a little bit of a recap of you know yeah, who's, won, who's won the league in the top five European leagues. So firstly, I don't know, Dave. Tell me. Firstly, you know, the one, the one that everyone knows, the Premier League, obviously won by Chelsea. I think Mourinho's uh, brought a lot to the Premier League coming back, I think. Tactically, he's been brilliant in the bigger games. You know, you look at the games against like Arsenal, where he went for the nil-nil draw. Both games against Man City that he picked up draws. Again, defensive performances. Absolutely fantastic. You know, he's brought this 4-2-3-1 back to the Premier League. And Eden Hazard has absolutely excelled for them, along with Cesc Fabregas and Diego Costa. How about uh, Spain? Let's talk about Barcelona. Obviously, we talked about yeah. it a lot, but go on. So give obviously, us, the, the... the title race was decided on, on Sunday with uh, their 1-0 win over Atletico Madrid. Obviously, they've, they've been brilliant under Enrique this season, playing a sort of 4-3-3 shape that switches to a 4-4-2 in defence. Absolutely brilliant. Lionel Messi has been out of this world, completing loads of passes, creating loads of chances and scoring loads of goals. Sergio Busquets is going to be my underrated man. Completed more passes than any Barcelona player this season in La Liga. Wow. So, you know, he's the like top that. man there. Like what about, tell me a little bit about France. So, PSG, uh, you know... What can you tell me about them? Something a little bit different. So it was a, it was a lovely, lovely league um, this season. We've had the likes of Marseille challenge early on with Bielsa and his high, high pressing three four three formation, um, and then Lyon coming in and being top of the league for a bit. But it's really PSG have really showed their class and you know the money that's pumped into their side. Sort of playing a four three three this season with Ibrahimovic as the focal point. Uh, but uh, you know, again, I think the money, the Thiago Silva, the David Luiz at the back, sort of you know brought it, brought the title home to back to Paris. Uh, how about uh, Germany then? Obviously Bayern Munich. Yeah, Pep Guardiola obviously won the league a while ago. They haven't picked up a win since they lifted the title. Interesting again, like we mentioned before, Pep's tactical. Um, you know, how he mixes things up. He's played a, he's played loads of different formations this year. You know, from a four three three to a four four two to a three five two to a three three four, which was pretty crazy with Robin Ribery down the sides of uh, Lewandowski and Thomas Muller up front. Pretty crazy, but obviously Bayern Munich have blown the league away again. And, you know, next year it's going to be looking the same, I think, with Iron Robin coming back to form. And finally, it's the, uh, the Champions League finalists, Juventus. The big ones. Juventus, obviously, they've blasted the league away again. Carlos Tevez has scored a number of key goals, their top scorer this season. They play a lovely 4-4-2 diamond, 3-5 slash a 3-5-2 from time to time when they want to be a little bit more defensive. My, my main man, Patrice Ever, obviously, they're picking up the Serie A title. Brilliant for the lad. 
I think it's going to be you know strength to strength for Juventus next year, and the Italian league is going to be on the up as a whole. Pretty great rundown. I like that. I like that. The thing that's striking, though, tell me if I'm wrong, right? You feel free to shoot me down. Has yeah. this been a boring season across Europe? So I think we could all call those champions early on in the season. I think pretty much everyone knew Chelsea were going to win it. You know, Juventus winning again. Is that four in a row they've won now? Yeah. Bayern Munich winning again. Uh, PSG winning again. Obviously, the, the champions have changed in, in Spain and England. But do you think it's been a boring season or, you know, what do you make of it? I think boring is the wrong way to go, isn't it? Adam, do you, you like movies, right? <laughs> yeah, all right. You know, you know um, The Fantastic Four? Uh, which one? I, d- I, don't, I don't give a damn. <laughs> like, just right. The Fantastic Four, right? You know the movie, right? Y- you, yeah. There's, all right, yeah, okay, okay, not Fantastic yeah. Four. The, the, or The yeah. Avengers, right? Oh yeah, go on. I love the Avengers. Right, yeah. yeah. I know you love the. I know you love Avengers. Is it the Avengers or Avengers? It's uh, it's uh, just the Avengers. Okay, great. Um, you know when you go in there, you know they're going to win, right? Right, right, right. Do you still enjoy it? I see what you're saying. So what? Yeah, I'm still saying. Is it predictable? But um, I, well, I like well, a few well, surprises. I mean, the Avengers is predictable. You know that America like is going to win. I like a few surprises. Um, well, yeah, but you do get surprises in there. We, you know, I mean, the surprise came in Barcelona after January. The surprise came that Chelsea, you know, got Not there this way. The surprise came. Well, the surprise came further down the league, I think, as well. Not just champions defining well a full season. Yeah, it's been nice. So, okay, fair enough. It's been Obviously. nice, hasn't it? That was know, nice. Like, I think that's the way that um, most managers finish the season. They just go. That was nice. And then they just, well, on to the next nice season, I think. (laughs) For me, last season was one of the best. I'm talking specifically Premier League now. But that was, I I thought last season was absolutely fantastic. It was great. You know, David Moyes in first season (laughs) about Ferguson. Really interesting title race. Liverpool pushing it late on. uh, Chelsea in the mix. all, All this other stuff going on. This year, it felt a little bit, it did feel a little bit predictable. And we sort of, everyone sort of called everything that was, was going to happen, basically. Even the race for the top four has sort of completely gone off the boil in the last few weeks. I know we, there's still one relegation place uh, up for grabs going into the final week, but it all just feels a little bit... Done and know. dusted by April, yeah, you Yeah, it feels a little bit, yeah, a little bit predictable. But is that is that the fault of, you know, some of the, the, the teams higher up in the league? They haven't... No one has really made a real title challenge for, for, for Chelsea this season. Well, anyway, yeah, exactly. something about, something about. <laughs> uh, bringing us on to uh, uh, the next talking point, uh, Lawrence. I think you want to talk about uh, financial fair play. I think most people want to talk about financial fair play, don't they? I mean, we saw the headline today from UEFA talking about. Real- well, of course they do. Why do you, I mean, really, if you don't want to talk about financial fair play, then you're not talking about the right thing, Adam. Um, UEFA. It's true. It's true. I mean, the point is, UEFA put these rules in there for a reason, and I think. The problem with, especially with the coverage of these rules, it's often going to be when someone puts a rule down and people say, right, we have to get it right from the very off because it feels unfair if you then change the rules. But what we have to say is that, especially within sport, when you put rules down, people are going to find ways to change them. We'd always, we've always found that with sport. You know, if you go back and look at basketball, it was um, that, you know, uh, every team has to have a net. Certain managers, in, certain coaches within basketball would stretch out the nets to make the ball go through them faster. Some would make them tighter so the ball wouldn't go through as fast and it would slow the game down. So over time, we got regulation nets. And as 
I'm saying there's an equivalent in football with this financial fair play that as people begin to find a way around it and specifically Man City and other people begin to look at trying to find ways around it, you know, having offshore holdings or teams in other countries, those kind of things, we're going to see that it has to be more of a network. It has to be better considered and it has to be something that's constantly reacting. And I think the interesting side is that what's being painted from Platini and him saying, I think we will ease things in inverted commas. Mm. Um, it, it means a change. But I don't know what ease things means. And I, I, very often the problem is that people are too pithy around these rules because politically it's hard. And what they need to name is that financially it's an unfair landscape right now. There has been some positivity from this. But I, I mean, I don't know what yeah. you guys think. But I think that, you know, we do need to address the fact that there is such disparity in financial holdings across all the leagues in Europe, especially the top ones that Dave's just been through himself. So we need to look at that. And there needs to be a serious and very open public conversation, not just one behind bureaucratic doors. And I sound a bit like Nigel Farage now, in Switzerland. <laughs> we don't Dave, just want it you... to be in Europe where we're decided who wins and who loses, you know? Yeah. And I think that's something that it should be a much more open discussion, especially amongst football fans, not just, you know, the, the, the enfranchised who managed to pay the money to get there. I completely agree with that. You know, there's, there's, Dave, there's let me ask just... you broadly what you think about it, but let me just give a little bit of um, background just in case people are confused about financial fair play because there does seem to be a little bit of confusion about it. Um, so basically they, they were introduced in 2011 to stop clubs spend, uh, spending beyond their means, basically. So they couldn't spend beyond the money, that, uh, the revenue that they're generating. So Platini's claimed its successful uh, net losses apparently have dropped from 1.7 billion across Europe in 2011 to 400 million euros in 2014. Um, do you think in principle it's a good rule to bring in and is a good way to govern the game? Or do you, do you think it makes things unfair in certain ways? I think it's fair when it's enforced properly. You know, you're looking at your revenue that you bring in and then you're setting how much you can spend on that, which is what you should do. It's, this, these rules are so clubs don't go bankrupt, so they stay afloat. But what, what they're not doing is they're like letting the likes of Man City and PS, PSG sorry, just slip through the net. You know, there's, there's been um, talk of um, uh, a Qatari airline sponsoring a hoardings in Paris for something like 400 million or something stupid like that. This hoarding is one hoarding in the whole of Paris. It's absolutely mental. Who's enforcing this? You hear about Man City counter suing um, UEFA for, for, you know, telling them they've got a breach of the rules. Absolutely crazy. Who is enforcing this stuff? And it makes well, it does make me not it does annoy me the, a lot. The problem is that we we live in such a rampant capitalist society, and we've created this for ourselves. Where, well, I mean, I I haven't created this, but I, I guess I'm completely. You've done system. it, Lawrence. I I did this, and I'm really sorry, is what I want to say. <laughs> but I think ultimately the biggest problem is we live in a rampant capitalist society where, like Dave says, people will counter sue for things because they believe yeah. in some way their rights have been infringed. Why shouldn't we be allowed to invest? Why shouldn't we be allowed to catch up? Well, that's I think the, that's part of the problem. Is that. Platini said this. He said we were going to relax the uh, the rules because it's they're saying it's a reaction to all the legal action as you're saying because people are saying it's basically contrary to uh, basic European Union rules about free markets. They're restricting. They're restricting. They've absolutely bottled it. That's part of the problem is that UEFA have done this with and this is this this it gets the crux of it. I think Adam. I mean, I'm I'm no professional on financial fair play, but I've read a little and read it and was part of a podcast which really went in depth on it when it first came out. And I said the point. <laughs> the point. It was a much better podcast than this. But the point <laughs> is that it's um. The, Within that, FIFA and sorry, UEFA have gone about this the wrong way. They a they needed something that was going to be 
uh, almost universal. So they needed to go to a lot of different people in the world. They needed to get this backed by the big clubs. The big clubs backed it because they knew essentially they would be able to do this and politically make it into a mire for UEFA, at which point they would have to um, fall back a little. The point should also be made that they didn't do it in the right way. So they were only restricting the club's which uh, essentially looked as if they'd done wrong. We have to look at things like the NBA. We have to look at things like the NFL. And we have to not be scared of countries such as Qatar, such as billionaires from America, other people who are only interested in entertainment. Because the worry, I think, for UEFA is as soon as you put um, a financial uh, restriction on uh, these clubs, people may stop investing. People may say, well, why can't we, why don't we just invest in our own country where there's no rules over those kind of things? We'll make our own, um, you know, financial rules and make our own league and attract people over here. And UEFA essentially bottled it when it came to these rules because they were, they were a halfway house between, uh, you know, making it fairer, but also keeping the hierarchy and the hegemony that we see right now. And therefore they're having, I know I've gone on a bit of a rant here, but it, it it, it, it doesn't work. Um, and, you know, it, it's worked to some extent, but it's too much of a halfway house for it to have been effective in a fair way. Well, it feels, it does feel like that's the problem. Right? Again, tell me if I'm wrong. But it does seem, I understand the principle of it. You want to stop clubs spending beyond their means. But as you say, it sort of actually just reinforces the, the horse status quo. Down. The horse is bolted. Well, exactly, yeah. So it, it, the horse at the is moment, already halfway down the next field. Because exactly. And the problem also being that you've let, the, you've let the horses into the field in the first place to play, and then you've tried to keep them. And that's the problem here, is that essentially when, you know, at the creation of things like the Premier League, you know, obviously Thatcherism was at its height, and, you know, we, we were in a, a very conservative era then. So that, you know, backed these kind of things. But now that it looks so outdated, because things like the NBA are thriving, you know, they've got control over their owners. They have control over how much money is invested in the league. And I know that there are, there are fin there's financial disparity in the league. There are financial problems. But it's, essentially what I'm saying is at least it's looking fairer than the Premier League looks. Well, no, I'm, I'm just with you. I feel like financial fair play keeps the rich clubs rich and it keeps the clubs who are poor. Well, no, that's, not, that's what I'm saying. Is that the, the, the NBA is a much fairer place to be than the Premier League. And, you know, the NFL is probably a much fairer place to be. And the irony is that they come from a, a neoliberalist country uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, ironically, where they all back capitalism, but they live in a, a communist sporting system. It's communism gone mad, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's the problem, isn't it? You know, we, we do live, we, we live and operate in a, in a, a hyper-capitalist society. And, um, you know, a lot... This is, this is what it's come to. But, but as soon as you say that, you sound like, a, you know, a crazy left. Um, no, but yeah, like you say, it's a, there's a, they've got a completely the different... Uh, system in America, which is obviously a very capitalist country, and yet it, it works for them. And like you say, the leagues are thriving, and we've got a lot of a lot of problems in the European game. So it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to see how they're going to. Something we've got to look at. It's also something yeah. where you know you have to look at wage caps and those kind of things and say, yeah, you know, I think that, that sort of stuff will worth. get brought in eventually, won't it? To stop, it's just inflating beyond all control, basically. But it's, I mean, um, it's also that we we have to look financially at it and say. How, how does finance influence the rest? And what we're ultimately finding is, is also that finance lifts people above the rest and gives them status, which maybe is unearned. Um, and, and that's part of the problem, isn't it? Is people feel like it's unfair in some way. And that's why financial fair play is named so. There you exactly. Go.
To wrap it up then, the final talking point from myself uh, is I want to talk about the greatest ever Premier League midfielder. So obviously Steven Gerrard uh, played his last game at Anfield over the weekend. There was a lot of discussion about who is the best ever midfielder in the league. Gerrard's up there. We've got the likes of Skulls. We've got Lampard. We've got Vieira. We've got Roy Keane. I'm guessing Dave's going to go for either Skulls or Roy Keane. Right? Going to be definitely Paul Scholes. I think his evolution Ooh. as a player is probably the, the best you've ever seen. You know, coming back from an attacking midfielder to a ball-playing central midfielder, he scored 107 goals in 499 games for Man United, and his impact was absolutely massive with the club. You know, and he, it, you look at his later days, he was just brilliant at dictating play. The amount of games that he just controlled by himself from you know after 2011 onwards, when he stopped you know being a box-to-box midfielder and just sat back ping balls around, chilled on the pitch. It was just brilliant to watch. <laughs> uh, so you're choosing Paul Scholes as the greatest ever Premier League midfielder. Lawrence, who are you going to go for? I suppose I'm going to have to go for somewhere else, aren't I? Um, well, you don't have to. You can agree if you want. I mean, I do agree. Scholes' stats are incredible. His achievements are absolutely incredible. Um, he's, he's, it's also the longevity with which he's done that is absolutely incredible. Gerard would be up there if it wasn't for you know his, his lack of a Premier League. I think Lampard's also in that list um, as a great player. Um, I'm going to have to agree and say Paul Scholes, although you know there were some other wonderful players in there who, who have wow. existed, but not for as long within the Premier League. And that's the point is you know Scholes is longevity basically. How close do you think Vieira and Keane are in this conversation then? So we're talking about Gerard Scholes and Lampard. Are Vieira Very, and Keane, anywhere they near left, those three? They they just... Just as things, they left just as things got, you know, right. squeaky bum yeah. time happened. And that was the point, was that, you know, they, they left the league just as it changed again. It cha- it, the, the next iteration came in and you think, well, then, you know, we, we can't judge them in that. Scholes existed across all of that. Yeah, exactly. I think that, that's it again. You know, Paul Scholl, sorry, Patrick Vieira and Roy Keane were fantastic. I think they were good characters, and I think that's what we've got to say. They weren't the best players, obviously from the longevity, but they were great characters, and they were great motivators, and they were very aggressive, but I don't think they had it all. They were, they were a little bit one-dimensional in themselves in terms of they didn't evolve in any way. They didn't change from a, a goal scorer to a defender to a whatever. They were just these you know, sort of angry players that got on the pitch, got the lads up. They were captains. Which, you know, in their own right is brilliant, but I wouldn't put them as the best midfielder because of midfielders have to play such different roles. I think they were both played a similar role. Let me ask you this then. So if, if Skulls, I would agree with you, Skulls is the greatest Premier League midfielder. He's, him, Gerard, and Lampard are in a class above those other two names we mentioned. How would you rank those three? So I'd go Skulls is the best. For me, I'd go Lampard next, and then I'd have Gerard as, as the third of those three. Are you going to agree with that, or are you going <sighs> to go for Gerard second, or...? It, it, it depends on how you rate them. In terms of raw uh, ex- excitement, I'm going to say Steven Gerrard tops it um, be- because, I, I, because I think he was. I think he was the most exciting player um, of the three of them. And um, and then you say in terms of controlling the game, which is maybe where you see Skulls and Lampard come in. You'd have to say it goes in that order that you've just named. Well, are you, Dave? Any any? No, I definitely, I definitely think Skulls is up. It's definitely up there in terms of excitement. I think he was. Uh, yeah, Dave, he was, Dave, he's not good. Sa- yeah, Dave, he's not <laughs> the same exciting player that Stephen no, no, Gerrard. No, I, I understand Different what you're saying. I think Stephen Gerrard was a, you know, some. He, he, it's classic. It's going back to a cliche of him taking the games by the scruff of the net. But you look at the finals that Liverpool were in in that time: Champions League final, FA Cup final. You know, he did perform at that level. 
maybe if he did bring the consistency to the league of those performances, you know, obviously he's consistent. He was consistent. It was brilliant. But if he'd had that higher level of consistency, that really dominating games, then he could definitely be up there with with Paul Scholes. But I would say it goes. I'd go Scholes. And then I, I, I can't. I just can't distinguish Lampard and Gerrard. I'd say they're on the same the same pedestal in a way, just under Scholes. Well, there you have it. There you have it. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We're going to have to end it there. Thank you for listening. For listening on SoundCloud, uh, give us a drop a comment on there. If you're listening via iTunes, don't forget to give us a rating and to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, where can the good listeners find more of your work, Lawrence? Uh, just Google Lozcast, L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, and you'll find me. You mainly find me on Twitter under the handle SquawkerDave, S-Q-U-A-W-K-A-D-A-V-E. Wow, there you go. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. I won't spell it out. Uh, but once again, thank you very much for listening. We hope this Skype uh, one-off Skype podcast worked. And uh, we'll be back next Wednesday with episode six. So tune in then. <laughs>